0: Good morning and welcome to Let's Talk New Mexico. I'm your host, Ty Bannerman. For many of us, the holiday season is a time to reflect on doing good, on helping our fellow humans and investing in our communities. On today's Let's Talk New Mexico, we'll be examining what that means from several different perspectives. We'll discuss how to make sure your charitable giving has the highest impact and chatting with folks who are engaged in direct methods of improving our world. And we want to hear from you. How are you taking steps to improve life in New Mexico? What inspired you to start making a difference in your community? What challenges have you faced in your efforts to do good and how have you overcome them? You can give us a call and join the conversation at one 277 5866 So, Joining me by phone is Michael Thatcher, the CEO of Charity Navigator, a national organization dedicated to helping people find effective charities that align with their personal values. Good morning, Michael.
1: Good morning, Ty. Really glad to be with you.
0: Yeah, we really appreciate you joining us. So when we think about donating money to organizations, perhaps a few big names um, come to mind immediately. Big Brothers, Big Sisters, Red Cross, Feeding America. And those are very worthy causes, but there are also thousands of smaller charities across the country that do great work and may line up with the donors' personal values in a better way, but are easily overlooked. How does charity navigator work to help someone find these
1: causes well the way we're set up right now is we're we're an online, free online database. So key point, free. So you can come and access our information. Doesn't cost you anything. We pull in all available and legally registered nonprofits in the US. So there's a there's a database of over it's about one point six million right now. We issue ratings on two hundred thousand of them. We also don't charge the charities for the for doing the ratings. And the minimal information is pulled in directly from their tax filing, so we're able to just tell you a little bit where the money goes, how they're set up from a governance perspective, and then There are organizations, big and small, that provide additional data to us that actually helps us let you know whether they're making an impact or not with the gifts that you're giving them.
0: And how exactly do you evaluate them to determine their ratings?
1: So we're looking at uh, four key areas of performance and health. Um, Let's say first and foremost, the leadership and adaptability of an organization, Do they, do they have, you know, do do they have a clear mission statement? Are their actions aligned with that mission statement? We look at their accountability and finances. That's coming in from the tax forms. We also look at something we're calling culture and community, which is how does the organization engage with the people it serves? That's one element of the rating. And then the other is how do they actually take care of their own people and some of their own internal diversity, equity, and inclusion practices? And then finally, and I would think almost the most important, what are their impact and results? And the way we're doing impact assessment is we have a known um, outcome. Take something like preserving eyesight through cataract surgery and do a cost-per-outcome analysis of that to help you understand who's going to be doing that work the most efficiently and making the best use of your dollar.
0: So it's very data-driven,
1: incredibly data-driven. And, um, and it's also a framework for setting up some questions. So one of the things I would say is you'll see with smaller charities, they don't necessarily have complete ratings, but the framework of the rating sets you up to ask some questions. And I think as a, as a prospective donor, you want to know that you're aligned with their intentions and the outcomes that they're trying to create. You want to know that they're financially sound you want to know that they're transparent and accountable, mm-hmm. and so these are sort of questions you can ask them based on the ratings or just you know engage with the the organization directly.
0: so what are some organizations here in New Mexico that score highly?
1: Oh, I mean in New Mexico, you have you have about eleven thousand organizations that um You know, this is actually something you can, you know, if you get on the website, charitynavigator.org, you can filter on New Mexico. And then within New Mexico, you can start looking for, let's say you want to look within a category of arts and culture, we go down to, then subset of that would be cultural awareness um i come down to that and i see well i've got the international folk art alliance uh, folk art alliance which has got a three-star rating Mm -hmm. they're based in santa fe uh there's also the workman's comp association of new mexico which is a four-star charity and they're in albuquerque and so this is sort of one way of going from eleven thousand down to two right um that may or may not be aligned with what you're looking for but that's kind of how you can start Um, and in your selection.
0: And you can search by cause, it sounds like.
1: Yes. So we've got um, multitude, there are a multitude of causes, and they go sort of, they cascade down. You've got arts and culture, education, Mm -hmm. environment, health, sciences, information, public safety, public affairs, religion sports there's there are more causes probably than you realize um but i think that's a really key part of the giving process is you want to get clear on what is it that you care about find an organization that within that cause area and then uh, a good organization that's actually doing something
0: Mm -hmm. so obviously you've got your finger on the pulse of the philanthropic world um how has uh, how has that changed uh, since the pandemic, which obviously changed everything?
1: The pandemic changed everything. The pandemic also, I think, really helped show how humanity cares, and there's been more giving in the last three years than than there has ever before. So wow. all of our numbers in terms of website traffic, the number of donations that we're seeing go out. Everything has grown um, mm. within our world. And it's, and it's interesting, even now as we're going into, you know, where there's a lot of economic uncertainty right now. People are still giving. We are noticing a slight decline. Mm-hmm. So if you take, we just went past uh, Giving Tuesday, which is a big sort of the opening of the giving season at the end of the year. It's a Tuesday after Thanksgiving. And this year, we saw more money going through our platform than in the year before, so about a 15 percent increase mm-hmm. in donations. but the actual dollar amounts declined slightly. Oh, interesting. So the, um, the, you know it was about a nine percent decline. We, it was a, The average gift last year was 130 dollars. It's dropped down to about 120 this year, mm-hmm. but people are still giving.
0: Is there a change in the kind of organizations that people are giving to?
1: There, it's shifted. So a couple of things happened at the beginning of the pandemic. There was a real move towards uh, human services, mm-hmm. which is kind of kind of intuitively makes sense. There was a decline in giving to arts and culture, the environment. That has now re-sort of corrected itself. Mm-hmm. But then you had another... Um, with uh, the the social justice issues that we've had in the country, there's big shift in funding going there. Mm-hmm. And then in this in 2022, with the war in Ukraine, there's been a great outpouring of uh, support for mm-hmm. the refugees um, in Ukraine. And so it, it tends to follow the um, what's happening in the world. Right. But that's, and I think that makes sense.
0: Now, one of the trends that I've read about is uh, something called decolonizing giving. Uh, Can you tell me about that and how Charity Navigator is helping to accomplish that mission?
1: Maybe. And um, I'd love to hear your definition of decolonizing giving so that I can answer it most (laughs) appropriately.
0: Um, I think that it's uh, trying to get away from the more traditional top-down, uh, organizations that uh, perhaps have less uh, racial equity in in who they serve, or less racial awareness and representation in their organizations.
1: So, from that standpoint, uh, the you know one of the key things, one of the key questions. There, there are kind of two areas to this for me. Which one is the sense of am I giving to an organization that is? made up of the people that they're trying to serve, mm-hmm. right? So that's cultural connectivity. Right. Um, that's one element. And then the other part of it is trust. And that is the sense that if I find a leader that's coming from a specific community that's addressing the issues of the community, I need to trust them to actually do their work. Mm-hmm. And so it's giving unrestricted gifts and not trying to, because I have money, sort of dictate how, how they should be solving a problem that I may or may not know that much about. Right. And so the, the way Charity Navigators really try to help with this is, one, a lot of these organizations tend to be smaller organizations. Mm-hmm. So we're, we've increased access and the ability to tell your story and actually show up um, and gain access to donors through our platform. And that's, you know, you see we went from nine, rating 9,000 organizations to rating 200,000 organizations. Wow. About a third of those are under under 200000 in annual revenue. So mm-hmm. it's much smaller than your, your mega charities. Right. The other is working towards creating lists that actually help you find organizations. So we have a list of uh, native-led, uh, native-run organizations. We have a list of black-founded and black-run organizations. And so um, and really trying to move into these areas of helping people find people within specific demographics. hmm Something we haven't done this yet, but it's it's trying to really sort of almost. Do, I was talking about search and your ability to filter. Right. We'd like to be able to help you filter on on specific demographics when that's appropriate. Right. I don't know that we'd be rating on that, but we would definitely be helping you search across that. Okay.
0: So, in this move towards um, a greater awareness of uh, of groups that are made up of the people who are actually. Being served or um represented, represented within that group, as we were just talking about, mm-hmm. um, are are you seeing that those groups are as effective as the uh, as the large top down models that maybe are more traditional?
1: So, unfortunately, the the data is I don't have enough data okay. to answer that right now in terms of our you know we haven't had a chance to look at this and you really have to look at mm-hmm. it over over a number of years. Because we're in this, we're moving into this right now. There's a there's a little bit of a chicken and egg problem for right. us. We don't necessarily, from the really smaller organizations, we don't always have their impact data, mm-hmm. and so we're figuring out mechanisms of actually collecting that data and then doing the analysis. So, short answer is, don't have that right now. Right, but very much um, that's on our radar.
0: So, uh, speaking of getting on your radar. Um, how can some of uh, New Mexico's smaller nonprofits, uh, maybe listeners who are hearing about this for the first time, know an organization that, you know, could, could uh, benefit from a, a greater visibility? How can they get on Charity Navigator's radar? How can they be evaluated, etc.?
1: So the simplest you will be you will be rated um, the way our system works right now if if you filed electronically filed your tax forms three years in a row. So that the put it in sort of the, the jargon of the sector, it's the IRS form nine ninety. If we have three years of consecutive data, we will be issuing a rating. Mm-hmm. So one thing is if you're a small nonprofit Go, go look yourself up on our site and see if you're already rating. You may, you may already be rated and not know it. Mm-hmm. The next thing that you want to do is you want to give us some additional data because that will actually differentiate you and elevate you in our search algorithm. So one is the leadership and adaptability data that, that you can get. We, we collect that directly from the charities. So for the, for the for that there, go to charitynavigator.org forward slash portal. Mm -hmm. And that is an area reserved for nonprofits themselves. There's also some data there that we collect through GuideStar by Candid, which is one of our partner organizations, and that is the culture and community data. The impact and results data is collected by us, and all of these things you can access through the portal. Mm -hmm. The more data we have on you, the more we can help you actually, you know, rise up and be discovered The last thing I'll say is that there's a there's a brand kit or a a ratings kit that you can use to promote your Mm -hmm. rating when you have a three or a four star rating. And this is important to donors because we're we are sort of the premium trust um, emblem that is used to show that this you've got this third party validation. Mm -hmm. And you want to use that as a means of actually differentiating yourself. Donors care. Well,
0: thank you so much for talking to us today, Michael. Uh, we are about to take a break. This is Let's Talk New Mexico on 89.9 KUNM. We are talking about New Mexico nonprofits doing and doing good in the world. Give us a call at 505-277-5866 and join the conversation. We'll be right back.
2: Hey, it's Danielle Kurtzleben from NPR, and I bet there's something on your to-do list you've been putting off. Maybe it's a haircut or a car wash. Listen, no judgment. But I promise getting it done will take so much less time than you've spent thinking about not doing it. I'm betting that donating to this station is on your list, and there is no better time than right now. So go do it. Here's how.
1: Visit KUNM.org to make your end-of-year contribution. In Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol,
3: Ebenezer Scrooge hates Christmas and hates generosity itself, until some well-intentioned ghosts show him what his greed might cost him. Music for Christmas and the lessons of the Christmas holiday on the next performance today from APM.
0: Weekday mornings at 9 on KUNM. Welcome back to Let's Talk New Mexico. I'm Ty Bannerman. Do you have any success stories or inspiring examples of nonprofits making a positive difference in our world that you'd like to share with our listeners? Call us at 505-277-9866. Now, for the next section of our show, we are going to be chatting with the directors of three different smaller nonprofits in New Mexico, each of which tackles a different issue area in a strikingly different way. Issues that Perhaps many people don't think about when they are considering the nonprofit landscape, but all of whom are devoted to making our world a better place. I do want to let our listeners know that two of these organizations do deal with some pretty heavy topics, including suicide and sexual assault. We're not going to get into details about either of these topics, but we understand that they are that they are upsetting. Uh, so please use your discretion going forward. And if you find yourself in need of support or resources, you can reach out to Agora Crisis Center at 505-277-3013. You can also call or text the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline at 988. So now I would like to introduce Christine Barber, the co-founder of Street Safe New Mexico. Good morning, Christine. Good morning. Thank you so much for being here. So tell us about what kind of work Street Safe New Mexico does.
3: So we work with um, uh, mostly women on the street uh, who are in the survival sex trade um, and also sex trafficking victims and those who are victims of sexual assault. Mm -hmm. Um, And we do this by physically going out into the street to do outreach, which is just a fancy way of saying we go and uh, drive around in our sketchy van um, mm-hmm. and hand out uh, pads, tampons, condoms, um, anything that the women might need, um, and sometimes men who are in the survival sex trade, and um, just make that contact, get to know them. Um, and then if they, you know, decide they want something specific, if they want to get out of the life, if they um, want to find their own housing, we try to help them with that.
0: So, how did this organization get founded?
3: So um, back in 2009, um, I was uh, volunteering at another uh, a homeless nonprofit here um, in Albuquerque um, with the intention of going to medical school. And I had been a writer and all of this. And I was like, I'm going to change my life and go to medical school because it looks good on mm-hmm. the medical school application to volunteer with the homeless. That's what my head was saying because I had no concept of anything back then. And while I was doing that, um, I met um, another volunteer who uh, we were talking about writing um, a book together about her life. And her name Mm -hmm. was Cindy Jaramillo. Mm -hmm. Um, Cindy had been out um, on the street uh, doing dates, um, which is what you call the sale of sex on the street. That's how it's referred to. She was out uh, doing dates when she was kidnapped in 1999 by a serial killer, um, the toy box serial killer, Mm -hmm. um, and taken to Elephant Butte. Right. Um, she was able to escape after three days. Um, and so we got to talking and um, both of us um, being experienced in volunteering for homeless organizations and then her experience of having been taken and mm-hmm. This was right after the, uh, the West uh, Mesa victims had been discovered, right. um, which were 11 women who had been on the street. Um, many of them, or all of them, had been um, selling sex, mm-hmm. and their bodies were discovered on the West Mesa. And so what Cindy said to me was, she knew if she had been killed um, by the toy box serial killer that she wouldn't have been reported missing for quite some time. And right. that had happened to several of the West Mesa victims. And she said... She just wanted there to be an organization that paid attention to women on the street. Right, And that's how we got started.
0: <laughs> amazing. And I want to point out that it was due to her testimony that that man was put in jail. So she, she could have been an anonymous victim and, and said she's kind of a hero.
3: She, yes. And she continues to be a hero every single day at, at Street Safe. She is right. amazing. So...
0: Uh, We do have an email from Mike. Um, He says, well, a lot of your discussion seems to be about financial giving. I would like to point out the importance of direct service. All the money in the world is not going to help if there is nobody to provide the services. Uh, Let me just (laughs) – it's a long email, so I'm just going to kind of skim this real quick here. But um, I would like to uh, get your feeling for – The difference between the financial giving and the direct work, how these two areas of um, nonprofits work together, what's what's the best way that they work together?
3: So uh, there's a... A way to look at it when you're uh, you're assessing, I think, the nonprofit that you are considering giving to mm-hmm. is what they actually are doing when they say that they're helping their population. Mm-hmm. And it was Michael, I think he wrote the email. He's completely correct, is that the, the direct contact, the direct services is incredibly important. Right. Um, and so uh, in giving money to an organization that is providing direct services – um, they, that money you give is directly going to the population you are trying to help with your money. Right. Um, that's more difficult when it comes to arts and things like that. Right. But um, for services like ours, any money you, for instance, for us, any money you give to us goes directly to um, helping women on the street. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't have that big top-down agency. We right. are considered an, uh, what's called an agile nonprofit. Mm-hmm meaning that um, we don't have a lot of the admin, we don't have a lot of the hoops and things that one has to um, jump through.
0: Yes. And I have a uh, kind of an addition here that uh, Mike also would like to add that it can be very impactful to meet the people that you help uh, so you can understand their need. Uh, Can you tell me about your own experience with that?
3: When I first started 15 years ago, um, I you know, in my head, I thought, well, this is what, um, this is what women on the street who sell sex. This is probably what they're like. Mm -hmm. Um, and I have to say that I truly did not understand how incredibly amazing they are. Mm -hmm. Um, our whole goal for us personally as an organization is the women we serve are, are perfect as is. Um, we don't, have any need for them to get clean or to stop what they're doing to be perfect Mm -hmm. if they choose to do that that's great um but i don't believe i personally would have known that i think i would have gone with my usual thought process Mm -hmm. was oh well they need to get they need to get clean they need to get off the street they need to put put all of my judgments on them before saying that they were they were perfect as is, mm-hmm. before saying that they were great as is. Right. And now I have since learned that that, that all doesn't need to happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, they are great. and we're here if they need if they want to. We're here if they don't,
0: and that's okay. Can you tell me about kind of what you've learned uh, as you've been out there working with this population?
3: I've learned how I've learned how resilient the women are. I've learned how how much their lives are just uh, one moving from one trauma to the next, and I've learned how short their lives are. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, we do a lot of memorial services. We do we lose a lot of people every year, a lot of women every year, and it's um, we always say that we are the we are the witnesses to to their lives mm-hmm. and we stand as advocates and we stand as the grievers when the the ones who grieve as they leave mm-hmm. um it is incredibly violent um it is incredibly difficult and right. i it, it's not easy to see that mm-hmm. to see people that you've known for a year to just suddenly not be there anymore and to have been taken by homicide or right so, yeah, it's 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 been quite the process. But also to say, boy, do they deserve to be fought for <laughs> every single day.
0: I think uh, there is a, a stigma about the kind of lifestyles that we're talking about here. And mm-hmm. I think there might be people listening who say these women are making a choice and – you know, your money would be better going elsewhere or or your your time. What would you say to that?
3: I would say that they, about the sense of choice, it was a lack of choice. Mm -hmm. Um, 86% of them were sexually abused at their homes to the point and the home life was so horrible that Almost more than 80% ran away. 64% of them were put into foster homes or mm-hmm. other relatives' homes when they were kids. So they came from these broken places, and they ran away to escape those broken places. And they went to someplace more broken, um, where they thought they at least might be able to have some protection. Mm-hmm. And during all of this, they, the, the vast majority don't have any high school. They have no way to get a job if there was a job to get. And it's... It, They have to be able to sign leases and get checking accounts. I mean, that's a lot. So I know people out there come from difficult circumstances as well, Mm -hmm. um, and they didn't end up on the street. Um, But sometimes everything is so broken, and the only escape is to go somewhere else to feel like you have some control. Mm -hmm. But the truth is you have lack, lack. There is nothing else you have, it is the lack of choice, the lack right. of anything else.
0: So when you started this organization with Cindy, um, you were considering medical school, kind of a different life than you have now. How did you make the choice that this is what you wanted to devote yourself to this particular cause and and population?
3: I don't know that there was a time where I made the conscious choice of I'm going to do this it was the, if I don't do this, if we, uh, street safe don't do this, how could we possibly leave these, the women we know and we care about and we see every single day? How could, how could that, that would be unconscionable. We, they, we, we care about them. Um, that's what, we try very. There's, there's a very much the you have to keep your distance from mm-hmm. your clients, and we don't go out and bake them lasagnas and things like that <laughs> and bring them over to their motel rooms. But we, we know them. We care mm-hmm. about them. We, we, we don't just have that. Please keep your distance from me, kind of thing. And mm-hmm. so, leaving at this point would mean that I'm, we're leaving an entire population, Right. and that um, I personally just don't. I. I like all the women I hang out with every single day. It's fun hanging out and doing <laughs> outreach with them. <laughs> so.
0: so tell me about the the kind of services your organization offers
3: now. Um, so the main thing we do, we do um, our, our outreach, which is kind of, um, we do what we call the three Ms, which is we meet new women on the street who are selling sex, who are out there for the first time, um, who are, are just at risk of that. Um, we, so meet, and the next one is missing. We'll look mm-hmm. for missing persons and, um, uh, people who need to, um, that families are trying to find them or, um, people that we haven't seen for a while that we're concerned about. And then the last one is messages. Mm-hmm. And so one of the things we do is we try to help them get housing. Right. So we'll do the housing applications for them. And so we'll have to go give them messages saying, Hey, you got your voucher finally after nine months, or it's time to go look for an apartment. Mm-hmm. Um, so we do that outreach. Um, We also, if someone identifies as a trafficking victim, um, we do have a system in place to help um, uh, get them out of that situation and get them Mm -hmm. into aftercare. Um, And then for rape victims, um, we um, uh, help them and we uh, uh, go with them Mm -hmm. um, if they choose to report it uh, to the sexual assault nurse examiners. We stay with them. Um, We help them if they decide to report it to police um, and stay with them for that process, too. Mm -hmm. So. Um, we kind of just, you know, do all, do kind of everything to try to make them feel at least that there's some kind of connection and that they, are are something hopeful that might be happening in the future even if something horrible just happened. So,
0: um, I know you uh, adhere to the philosophy of harm reduction. Can yeah. you explain what that is and why, why you go with that instead of, you know, preaching to change your life and.
3: <laughs> so harm reduction is the idea that um, you're trying to, uh, the, the person is going to, if the person is engaging in something that um, could be harmful to them, that you're there to help them reduce the harmful consequences mm-hmm. of that behavior. Um, and it it is the idea that if, I think for all almost everybody, if uh, let's say you are um, not supposed to be drinking Diet Coke Mm -hmm. and someone comes up and starts yelling at you, don't start drinking your Diet Coke. Why are you drinking Diet Coke? Versus a, I see you're drinking Diet Coke and I know you don't want to. Um, Or if you're going to, is there a way I could help you? Would you like a clean, uh, you know, a clean drink, a Mm -hmm. clean, you know, glass or it's, it's more of the... When that person chooses, or if they ever choose to to stop that harmful behavior, that you are that they they haven't gotten that that they are in a place where they um, are still uh, able to make the best decisions. Specifically for drug use and sex work, Mm -hmm. um, there are a lot of diseases that can um, a lot of sexually transmitted diseases that if they if you are not supporting them, if they decide to leave the life. They, um, you want to make sure they don't have, mm-hmm. and or not don't have, but that they have they have been able to give the they're given the resources to protect themselves if they so choose. Right, and again, they have had no very few choices in their life. We're just trying to give them a choice of what they want to do.
0: So, what are the biggest challenges you face in your work?
3: Um, biggest challenges are always um, lack of funding and um, lack of um, other organizations to kind of hand off the, the, like, if the women decide to go into housing, we have to find all of these. There's The, the different programs require different things, and then we have to go find the apartment, and there's no mm-hmm. apartments. Like, every single aspect of trying to help them, there's some hurdle. Even a trafficking victim. We identify a trafficking victim right now, there's organizations that will not take women who have been trafficked on the street mm-hmm. um, because they have a lot of um, – there's a lot of inherent challenges to that. So then we have to go find a program for them. We have to figure out, you know, where to put them. We have to – everything is a challenge from the second we – and it would just be nice if we had a, more of a flow to let's just send this person. We can, we can hand them off – a warm handoff to another agency who's like, we got it. Don't worry. Mm-hmm. And that's not happening.
0: <laughs> so, uh, if listeners are interested in helping uh, directly for any of these organizations, um, we do have uh, links to them on our website. But um, beyond that kind of direct aid, uh, if if listeners want to help with this population, help with how they're perceived or what have you, what what is the best way that they can do that?
3: Um, so, I I know it's it's hard and. Uh, but uh, people, it's the monetary donations are very helpful to small organizations. Mm-hmm. Well, and and big, I'm sure, but a um, uh, hundred dollars to us is a lot, yep. and um, that we can do a lot with that. Um, okay. And so th- that goes directly to, to providing services. Right. Um, and then um, if if I. Th- and if that is, if people aren't unable to give just to, for our population right. specific, think about when you're discussing people who sell sex, mm-hmm. or you hear people discussing that, just trying to insert some compassion into that conversation. Right. And insert some, well, hey, wait a second, this, is, this isn't a, uh, sh- she might not be doing this because this is her desired career. Right. Um, so let's maybe not make fun. Let's maybe not call call them names.
0: So understanding and, and humanity. Yeah. Uh, we do have to take another break. You are listening to Let's Talk New Mexico on 89.9 KUNM. I'm Ty Bannerman. We'll be back in a minute.
2: Citizens of the Métis Nation of Alberta voted overwhelmingly to ratify a new constitution. If fully adopted, it would solidify the nation into a self-governing body but some Métis settlements and communities opposed the new Constitution, saying the process lacked adequate consultation. We'll talk about the importance of the new Constitution process on the next Native America Calling.
3: Weekday mornings at 11 on KUNM.
1: Each week, KUNM reaches thousands of New Mexicans with quality reporting, expert analysis, and music that connects our communities. It's all made possible by contributing members. Thank you, KUNM. Powered by you. Listeners appreciate how nonprofit organizations are helping the community. Nonprofit underwriting at KUNM highlights your work while supporting KUNM programming. To become a nonprofit underwriter, call Aaron Steele at 505-277-2163.
0: Welcome back to Let's Talk New Mexico on KUNM. In your opinion, what are the most pressing social or environmental issues that New Mexico nonprofits should be focused on addressing? Call us at 505 277 5866 and tell us what you think, or email us at letstalk at org. Uh, Now, at this point, I'd like to bring into the conversation uh, Jamie Gloucet. She is the co-director of Native Women Lead, an organization that seeks to fund and empower Native American women entrepreneurs. Thanks so much for coming on today, Jamie.
2: Hi, good morning. Thank you, Toy.
0: So a lot of nonprofits, like we have just been uh, speaking to Christine Barber about Street Safe New Mexico, a lot of nonprofits focus on providing survival basics like food, shelter, and medical necessities. Uh, Native Women Lead works to help Native American women start and grow businesses. Why is that important?
2: Um, It's important because it allows us to lean into what we're already doing. Uh, When we started the organization, it was founded by six uh, Indigenous women entrepreneurs and two that were supporting economic development and Um, trying to increase access to capital for Native entrepreneurs, so eight of us total. And when we looked around, we realized that there wasn't an organization, both locally as well as nationally, that represented Native American women. Mm -hmm. And um, when we were really reflecting on what makes us different, the big thing that came up is that we bring our culture, our cultural values, on our worldviews to this work, Mm -hmm. and we also bring our community because um, our responsibility to our community is, is paramount in our lives. So we wanted to create a space where we could feel seen, centered, uplifted, and and get inspiration from one another. And when we dug a little bit deeper into the research, we realized that Native American women actually two thirds of us are the primary. I always always joke, the breadwinners and the breadmakers in our (laughs) community. So we're the key economic stabilizers um, within not not only our families, but in our nation. Mm -hmm. And entrepreneurship, we also learned from an American Express report that was done in 2017 uh, around the state of women-owned businesses. Uh, Native American women uh, were growing businesses twice as fast as any other demographic. So we saw that as one... um, a unique opportunity to create a community that was reflective of us, mm-hmm. and um, kind of continue to to mobilize what was already happening. Women were already stabilizing their families and their communities, but they were also growing businesses um, at a at a pretty fast rate. And we were we wanted to be there to be part of that, be part of that narrative.
0: Now the organization helps. Um acquire uh, like kind of financial support for, for these women. Is that correct?
2: Yeah. So we've actually, uh, because there's a huge access to capital gap, um, both within native communities, as well as outside, um, we've actually had to create our own capital tools in partnership with financial intermediaries. Um, we learned also that in New Mexico uh, predatory lending mm. was really, has been essentially really high, Really, um, just a huge problem. And a a majority of predatory lenders, nearly 64%, are around tribal lands. So they're specifically targeting Native American people. Mm -hmm. And um, what we've learned from the community we serve is that oftentimes they feel like they're um, hitting both racial and gender bias within Mm -hmm. financial institutions. They're not getting, they're critically underfunded. And the interest rates that they're charged are. Um, exorbitant, so we realized that we had to create capital tools that had equitable interest rates, mm-hmm. that were patient and met people where they were in their, where they are in their entrepreneurial journey, and um, ensuring that the relationship with the, the borrower and, and us kind of as a lender, as a decision maker, that it moves from not just a transactional financial relationship, but a, a transformative mm-hmm. relationship that really um, um, provides wraparound support for, right. for these entrepreneurs.
0: Now, in, in the lending world, uh, there's often talk about the five C's of credit, which are capacity, capital, collateral, conditions, and character. Uh, Native Women Lead instead focuses on the five R's. Can you tell me what those yes. are and how Absolutely. that change in focus benefits Native American women?
2: Yeah, so I used to be a lender, and a lot of uh, what I found as I was trying to fund this demographic was a lot of times, based on the five Cs of credit, Mm -hmm. the entrepreneurs I wanted to fund would not meet the underwriting requirements. Um, And as we got to evolve the organization, we realized that we had to create completely new frameworks to meet the needs of our people because the five Cs mm-hmm. of credit quite frankly have been economically exclusionary for most um, communities and do not take into account essentially historical systemic oppression so mm-hmm. the five r's as we uh, was introduced um essentially created by myself and my colleague vanessa roenhorst uh, and it was really a, a way to dismantle exclusionary framework that exists mm-hmm and ensure that decision-making process and power are intentionally spearheaded and uh, protected for Native women to mitigate racial and gender bias. So it was was essentially a framework that was developed um, by us for us. And the five R's are relational. Does does entrepreneur have um, value reciprocity and relationships? Are they rooted in indigenous values? Um, Is the business restorative? Does it aim to support employees and business owners to close their racial wealth gap? Is it regenerative? Is there um, uh, acknowledgement of the environmental impact and seventh-generation impact that these businesses have on their families, communities, and economies and environment? And last, is it revolutionary? Is this business game-changing or solving a problem? So we took those five R's essentially as an antithesis to the five C's because, um, you know, in this country today, if you look at FICO scores, if folks don't have access to financial education or opportunity or are even told how the game is played, they may not have the best FICO score. Um, a lot of our communities don't have inherited wealth or friends and family wealth, mm-hmm. uh, so they don't have the capital that I think is what they call, you know, the initial injection into the business. And oftentimes as a, as a lender, we look at market conditions to check out, to, to understand the business viability and, and the, the potential market that the business could have influence in and, and oftentimes in informal economies that exist in tribal communities and on reservation economies, those market conditions are often unknown. Mm-hmm. And I would also say um, another big issue with access to capital is because indigenous people, we don't own reservation land. We cannot leverage assets such as house a house or a vehicle as collateral. And oftentimes um, that's a huge issue. So banks, one, do not want to sue a tribe and try to um, get that collateral. And, and oftentimes it's, it's kept banks from doing right. business within our communities. So we're trying to figure out a way that um, understands the realities that Indigenous women face today, but also are we're redefining what risk looks like and um, trying to figure out a way to ensure that we increase access capital for the women that we serve.
0: And um, as I mentioned before, there is information about all these uh, nonprofits on our website if listeners are would like to know more. Um, I do want to bring in our final guest, uh, Molly Brack, the director of the Agora Crisis Center, a nonprofit helpline which provides compassionate, non-judgmental help for anyone in need of emotional support. And again, I want to advise our le- listeners that we will be touching on some heavy topics in this conversation, including suicide. If you find yourself upset by this conversation, you can actually call Agora directly to receive support and services at 505-277-3013, or you can call or text the Suicide and Crisis line at 988. Uh, thank you for joining me today, Molly. Yeah, thanks for having me. So can you tell me a bit about the, uh, the Agora Crisis Center? Like, Who calls? What kind of issues does the center help with?
4: We get calls from every kind of person about every kind of issue. You don't have to be in crisis to call. Many of our callers are just going through a rough time, maybe having a bad day. They may be struggling with some kind of chronic health issue that has them housebound, and they just need to talk to somebody mm-hmm. in the world, make a connection with another person, and process what they're going through and, and what they're feeling.
0: And and then, so how do you help when, when somebody calls in with whatever issue they're having?
4: Yeah, when someone calls us, we basically just say, tell us what's going on. And then we let them do that. And people, uh, you know, describe their situation and talk about how they're feeling. We try to help validate those feelings and help them process what they're thinking. And then sometimes people are looking for resources and solutions. So we might give them some referrals to community agencies, uh, Mm -hmm. maybe counseling, housing, a shelter, you know, a wide variety of things. So many of our callers just call to talk. Mm -hmm. They just want to have somebody hear them and understand what they're going through. And then some people really, you know, are looking for what's that next step that's going to help me as well.
0: So why is that so important, kind of the emotional support aspect of things, as opposed to uh, providing like a direct, like, uh, here 's the number for uh the uh, police or what have you.
4: I think a lot of people well first, not every problem warrants you know the police or mm-hmm. even warrants therapy. sometimes people just want to talk about. You know, I had a weird day. I had a thing happen today and you know, sometimes we want to talk to somebody who's not involved in our life, who's not mm-hmm. part of what's going on maybe, and just hear an an unbiased person kind of connect and say, "You know what? I care enough about you to show up for 4 hours a week and listen to strangers on the helpline and I want to understand what you're going through." Because we're all going through something, right? Like every right. one of us has something we might call agora about, and and have a conversation and connect with another human. And I think especially during the pandemic, when you know, especially during the lockdown, when we were so distanced mm-hmm. from each other, it was really important to have somewhere that you could connect with another live human being <laughs> in the world. And and that is still so important to people, especially if someone is you know, housebound or isolated, maybe lives in a rural community.
0: Now, we have obviously three very different kinds of organizations that we're talking to today, but this idea of care and community seems to be something that keeps coming back up. And I just want to go um, to the different directors and, and ask, why is community so important in what you do? And I'd like to start with Jamie.
2: Thank you, Ty, and thank you for all your work. Um, Thank you. care and community is so critical because I feel like it's a risk mitigator, especially when you're dealing and working with populations that high, have high rates of trauma. Um, it's a place to feel seen, heard, protected, uplifted, supported, and it closes that belief gap. Mm-hmm. If you see yourself and others and you see that they're making a pathway, um, you see that it's possible. Thank you.
0: And, and Christine, what are, what are your thoughts on this, the importance of kind of building community? In your in the work you do,
3: so it's, in what we do, we have the the community on the the street among the among the women who sell sex is actually phenomenally important, and they rely on each other a lot. Mm-hmm. But then I I I think about um, Jamie and Molly here on the um, on the interview with me, and it's like our community um, as as directors who are helping other people is also incredibly important. Um, so I feel like community is 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 how we uh sustain each other it's how we support each other um and uh i i think it is it can't be overstated how much it means to all of us even if we don't think about it every day
0: right um i do have a caller uh we've got carmen from northern new mexico good morning carmen what would you like to uh add to the conversation today
5: Thank you. Good morning. My name is Carmen Rodriguez and I'm with Mana del Norte. And I just want to thank you, KUNM, and also the women who have been speaking today, this morning, on all of their other nonprofit organizations that they're doing for everyone in the, in, in New Mexico. And I also, uh, so I just want to thank you for doing the hard work because it is really, really hard to be a nonprofit organization in Northern New Mexico. Mana del Norte is the only Latina women's organization in Northern New Mexico. We serve as uh, Los Alamos, Mora, Rio Riba, Santa Fe, San Miguel, in Taos, and so um, we are here to help the women are are to help uh, empowering Latinas through education, community service, leadership development, and advocacy. And we have been in existence since 1989 here in northern New Mexico. Mm-hmm. And we uh, we we do like a lot of the other nonprofits. Women says we we uh, we. Have meetings. We have practicas. We have conference. We have during National Hispanic Heritage Month. We celebrate uh, National Hispanic Heritage Month, and we also give scholarships to Latinas in mm-hmm. here in Northern New Mexico. And this year, we were able to give ten scholarships out to Latinas and to continue their education, higher education in in medical field, in nursing, and social services, in and science and um, like like all of the other uh, non-profit organizations, are. the way we survive also is through um, businesses and sponsors and and mm-hmm. our membership. Our membership is all volunteer. All the money that we raise goes directly to our scholarship program. We do not have any, uh, we do not spend it at all into, it. we do it all ourselves. We give to Mana del Norte and Mana del Norte then gives to the Latinas here in northern New Mexico. And I just wanted to shout out to Mana del Norte because, like I said, we're the only ones here in northern New Mexico. We've done really good, even though we're all mm-hmm. volunteer. It's hard to uh, continue with our membership and to continue with our work, but we are still doing it because we have the ganas, we have the the corazon, and we have, mm-hmm. we have the will and the need to help other Latinas to survive, because when we survive and the other Latinas survive, they're surviving, they're helping themselves, they're helping their families, and then therefore they're helping their communities.
0: Well, thank you so much for calling in today, Carmen. Um, Molly, I'd like to go back to you and I, I know that the work that you do uh, often you are as you say speaking to people who are in crisis I know that this can be a very difficult time of year for people New Mexico consistently has one of the highest suicide rates in the nation um, what words do you have for any listeners who might be struggling right now?
4: well I guess you know what I always tell people is, the, to To reach out and make a connection with someone, whether it's Agora or someone else, because people do want to help if they have the opportunity. If they know that you need it, they will want to to support you and help you. But the problem is that when we're struggling, when we are maybe have some depression, Um, going on in the voice, the voices in our head, (laughs) the the normal voices in our head, tell us, don't reach out for help. Nobody cares or it won't Mm -hmm. work or it's not worth it. But the truth is that there is help and you, you can get support and it can make a huge difference, but it's hard to take that first step to make a call or to talk to someone in your life and say, Hey, you know what, I'm struggling and I need some help.
0: And, you know, it is, um, a sad fact the time has run away from us we uh we are going to have to in the show so thank you so much for the uh calls and emails that we got and of course thank you so much to our guests michael thatcher christine barber jamie glochet and molly brack you can find more information about all of these amazing organizations on the website kunm.org if you missed part of the show, we will have the audio up on the website soon, or you can subscribe to the Let's Talk New Mexico podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Our engineer this morning is Marino Spencer, Kave Movahead handled the phones, Bryce Dix live tweeted, and Megan Camrick produced and is our news director. I'm Ty Bannerman. This is Let's Talk New Mexico on 89.9 KUNM.